John chapter 3, starting with verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. There was three boys playing on a playground, and they were bragging about their dads. You, you remember that scene when you were growing up, guys, where, you know, my dad's better than your dad. You know, that whole thing going on. You're going back and forth. And one of them said, well, my dad... He scribbles just a few words and calls it a song, and they pay him like 50 bucks. The other one said, oh, yeah? Well, my dad, he, he scribbles a few words, calls it a poem, and they pay him almost 100 bucks. And the third one said, well, that's nothing, because my dad, he scribbles a few words, calls it a sermon, and it takes six people to collect all the money in the room. You know, the whole, my dad's better than your dad. My dad's greater than your dad. Greater than, less than. That's the title of the teaching tonight. Greater than, less than. It's a term that we're familiar with from whatever level of math that we had when we were growing up. Greater than, less than. We're all familiar with that terminology, right? Well, verse 22 tells us that after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. So after this lengthy discussion at night with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples move on into the land of Judea. But you might ask, well, wasn't that where they already were? Isn't Jerusalem in Judea? Yeah, it is. But they left Jerusalem and went out into the countryside. It'd be like us leaving Denver when we get outside of Denver and we're in the countryside as it is, uh, we're out of Denver and we're in the state of Colorado. So this is the same principle here with Judea. They come out of Jerusalem and then they're in the country, uh, the area of Judea. 
That's where Jesus spent a lot of time in his ministry, was in Judea and Galilee. It seems like if you look at Jesus' ministry, he, he really only had to, went to Jerusalem when he had to. And when he had to, he had to, because the Father was directing him to go there, and he was fulfilling the law as well. This area, Judea, Galilee, a large part of Jesus' ministry takes place there. And it says he remained there with them and baptized. Although, if you look at chapter 4, just real quick, at verse 2, what does it say? It says, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. So the Apostle John gives us some clarification, actually at the start of the next chapter, on the verse that we just read here in uh, verse 22. He remained there with them and baptized, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. So what about baptism? Baptism. In the Bible, we know that there's really two holy sacraments uh, which we are to practice and to observe. One of them is the Lord's Supper, communion, and the other one is baptism. The purpose of both is to signify by outward symbolism what Christ has accomplished in a believer's life through faith in Christ. You've heard the phrase, an outward expression of an inward faith. And it's true. And as true believers, we are both instructed and commanded to submit to both of these as an expression of our faith in Jesus Christ. And what has become known as the Great Commission, it's not called that in Scripture, but the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, it says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If you've ever been at a baptism, you hear the pastor say that as he lowers someone in the water and brings, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now the word baptize is taken from the Greek word baptizo, meaning to immerse or submerge, to overflow or cover with water. It goes on to even give a definition of to wet thoroughly <laughs> or moisten. Well, to wet something thoroughly, it has to be completely submerged, doesn't it, or immersed. Now at Calvary Chapel, if you've been around Calvaries for any length of time, you know that we practice baptism by immersion. And I believe that we can actually see this confirmed in the next verse, verse 23. It says, Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim. Why? Because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. Because there was much water there. It's, it's pretty simple. John went where the water was, didn't he? Because he was baptizing by immersion, he went where the water was deep, where there was plenty of water. And it says much water. There's much water there. If all is required is to be sprinkled, as is the tradition of some, it wouldn't take a whole lot of water, would it? Just a little bit of water and you could sprinkle someone, throw it on them. But to be immersed, it requires much water so that you can be taken down into the water and taken back up. Pastor Chuck Smith said years ago when he was baptizing out in the ocean, one of the guys walked out and Pastor Chuck was talking about how in Romans 6.4 it says we're buried with him through baptism into death just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father even so we also should walk in newness of life and Pastor Chuck shares that this guy walks out and he says to him hold me down a long time Pastor Chuck I got a lot to bury I think we can all relate to that can't we 
But when we're submerged underwater as we're baptized, it represents the death and burial of our old life. The old life is gone. That's what it represents. Buried and brought up into newness of life. So when we're brought up out of the water, it represents this new resurrected life that God has given to us. In other words, water baptism is a physical depiction of the spiritual work that God does within a person's heart when they place their faith in Him. It's a physical depiction of the spiritual work that God does within a person's heart when they place their faith in Him. And the only requirements for a person to be baptized are that they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and that they understand what baptism represents. And that's why uh, you know, most times pastors will talk to the people before they baptize them, but that's why they say, we now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. You're being buried the old self and you're brought, being brought up into newness of life. And if those two things aren't present in the baptismal act, then all you get is wet, right? Because you haven't recognized these things, that you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you understand what baptism represents. Now, since we've been here, the 12 or 13 weeks that we've been here, several have approached me about, uh, with a desire to be baptized. And if you've never been baptized, if you were just sprinkled as an infant, if, if you have questions concerning baptism, then catch me after the service. We want to set up a time where we can actually have a baptism. And that's going to be available to anyone who wants to be baptized. We want to make that available to you. Having said all of that, that we practice baptism by immersion, and we believe that that's the biblical mandate for baptism, I want to qualify it by saying it isn't always possible. My dad and my mom, they were going into a nursing home for a number of years teaching a Bible study. And, of course, they believe in baptism as well. And there were those that were asking if they could be baptized but some of them were in wheelchairs. Some of them had physical issues. There are times when it's just not possible, whether it be a health or handicap or whatever it might be, that it's not possible for them to be baptized by immersion. Now, I think God understands that, don't you? If it's the desire of their heart to be baptized, God knows their heart. God can accept another method for that to be accomplished. But I also think that if you are capable of being baptized by immersion, that's the desired uh, practice. So uh, God knows their heart, their desires as he knows ours, as we desire to be baptized. So baptism, we always have to remember this key when we're interpreting scripture. We've gone over this before, that if, if Jesus taught it in the gospels, if the early church practiced it in the book of Acts, and if Paul explained it, in his epistles, then it's something we should be living out. If Jesus taught it in the Gospels, if the early church practiced it in the book of Acts, and if Paul explains it in the epistles, then it's something we should be doing. So if there's any question about certain things, you dive into Scripture and you see what it has to say in those places. You seek out what God's Word, His guidance, His counsel has for you in that. Now, for clarification, some of you may have a a question, a what about question in your minds right now, because 
We saw earlier in John 1, verse 33, John the Baptist said, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And also, John says in uh, the book of Mark, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, I indeed baptize you with water, but he, Jesus Christ, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So there's two baptisms being talked about here. There's a baptism with water by John the Baptist, and there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is going to bring. Now, we know that as we go through God's Word and we look at the text in context of everything that we have for us, as we're studying verse by verse through the book of John, that we know from this particular text it's only speaking of water baptism. It says Jesus and his disciples are baptizing in verse 22. John is also baptizing in verse 23. But it's confirmed for us in John 4, 2 that Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. So Jesus himself is not baptizing here, is he? So it's not this baptism of the Holy Spirit. So then you're probably thinking, well, then what is that? What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Pastor Jim? Well, we're actually going to be looking at that in more depth this Thursday night in our discipleship study. Thursday night, 7 o'clock, here at the church. So, you know, if you're interested, you want to find out more about that, I have right here in my notes an encouraging pause. I don't know if I pulled that off well, but yeah, we're going to be looking at the Holy Spirit uh, in our discipleship class on Thursday nights. So if any of you are interested, I encourage you to come. We'll have more time to talk about that and take questions and interact as we go through that study. So John is baptizing, and we know from verse 24, John had not yet been thrown into prison. Obviously, this is all happening before John is thrown into prison. So why was John thrown into prison? There are several uh, gospel accounts of this, Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 3, and then it's mentioned here in John 3. And we see in these accounts that there's a guy named Herod, he had a brother named Philip. And Philip had a wife named Herodias. Well, Herodias left Philip to be with Herod, which at first glance I thought, that's kind of strange. Herod, Herodias, you know, the names are very similar. John found out about this, and John condemned their relationship as immoral, which he should, right? You got the wife of Philip, who was Herod's brother, shacking up with uh, you know, Herod himself, and just not, just not right. So John's right on here by uh, condemning this relationship. Well, this ticked off Herodias, and she wanted uh, John put to death. So John was arrested, and then on Herod's birthday, Herodias' daughter danced for Herod, and it's, the text says he was pleased. It must have been quite a dance, I'm thinking. You know, he was taken in by this dance, whatever it was, that Herodias' daughter did. And because of this dance, he was so impressed with it, he said to her, I'll give you whatever you ask for. So Herodias, working the back door on things, tells her daughter, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Not enough just for the head of John the Baptist. She wants it on a platter. 
Herodias, her mother prompts her to ask for this. And then Herod, he gives in. He has John beheaded and brought to her on a platter, just like the text says. Now, I don't know about you, but this kind of sounds like a dysfunctional family to me, to some degree. Uh, who didn't come from a dysfunctional family? I mean, really, we all have, right? This all happens later in John's ministry, but for now, the text shows us that John's baptizing, Jesus' disciples are baptizing, and from the text, we're going to see that this, a conflict arises. There's a conflict that happens. Now, in verses 25 through 36, we're going to see four things that stand out. If you're a note taker, write these down. We're going to see, number one, dispute. Number two, defense. Number three, delight. And number four, declare. Number one, dispute. Number two, defense. Number three, delight. And number four, declare. So number one, dispute. John's disciples cause a controversy. Verse 25 says, Then there arose a dispute between some of the John's disciples and the Jews about purification. So some of John's disciples have a dispute with some of the Jews regarding purification. And the dispute was probably over what was required for purification. What, what does the law say? That's what the Jews are going to argue, right? What did the law have to say about purification? Well, we saw some of that back in John chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana. There were these jars set aside for what? For purification. That was something that needed to take place. John comes along with this baptism of repentance. It was probably perceived by these Jews that John's adding to the law. John's adding something else to this whole purification rite. John had this one-time washing, a baptism of repentance. You only had to be baptized once for this to take place. So they thought he was probably adding to the law, and you don't just add to the law whatever you want, right? Although, <laughs> if you know your history, the Jews did it on a regular basis over time. Verse 26 says, these disciples, the picture of the scene, these disciples were evidently, as we look at the text, they were at the place where Jesus was baptizing, or his disciples, that Jesus was there, because it's a first-hand account. They know that this is going on. And evidently this conflict arose at that place, or between the two places, or something. But anyway, they come back to, to John the Baptist and they say to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. So what we see here is an overlap in the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist. They're going on in conjunction with each other at the same time. Nothing wrong with that. But John's disciples come to him, and they give him an update, and it's interesting what they give him an update on. It doesn't have anything to do with the purification dispute. That's not mentioned in the text. They're not talking about that. That there's, hey, we were over there and there was this dispute about purification and we want to get your take on it. That's not what happened. What did they say? They had a dispute of their own making here. It's like, teacher, do you know that this Jesus guy, he's baptizing as well and everybody's going to him instead. Teacher, this guy's walking all over your ministry. What are we going to do about this? 
So these disciples of John, they make it sound like that there's a, you know, a first century baptizing competition going on. You know, ah, they're baptizing over there. They're, they're baptizing more people than we are, you know. So competition. They're looking at it as a competition. Competition in ministry. It happens. It's sad, but it happens. It shouldn't. And what it does, we know for sure that the focus is not on Jesus. Because if the focus is on Jesus, then a lot of the things that we're having disagreements about, they can be overcome because we're keeping our focus in the right place, right? For example, when we checked on this building about the possibility of renting it for our services, Pastor Steve, the pastor that uh, meets here on Sunday morning, he could have said, eh, no way, this is, this is our building. This is our work. We bought it. We paid for it. It's ours. You know, you just go get your own place. He could have said that, but he didn't. He told us, this is not our building. This is God's building. It's to be used for God's work. It's not my work. It's not your work. It's God's work. So because of that, we have the freedom. We keep our focus on Jesus, and we can minister side by side. It's a wonderful thing. There are people that go to Pastor Steve's uh, church on Sunday mornings, his services, I'll never be able to reach. And the same is true with him. So you divide and conquer. We're able to cover two groups of people and we're able to minister in harmony with each other. And it, are there some doctrinal or theological differences? There may be. We haven't really talked a whole lot about that because we're keeping our focus on Jesus Christ, which is where it's supposed to be. Calvary Chapel in Greeley has done that as well. They, they opened up their building to a Christian school. It's two separate ministries sharing the same facility for the glory of God. You know, and it's sad, but not every church, not every ministry would do that. So now John, these guys come back whining to him, and he has to deal with this controversy that his disciples, they've created themselves. They, this perceived ministry competition, they started it. And John doesn't answer them by slamming the other ministry, does he? He does it by pointing them back to Jesus, as we see in point number two. Point number one was dispute. We see this dispute that's going on. Point number two, now we're going to see his defense. John is going to defend Jesus and defend his ministry. In verse 27, it says, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. And you yourselves bear me witness that I said, hey, you guys were there when I said this back in chapter 2. You guys bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. So John states very clearly that all ministry and blessing come from where? From God. So there can be no competition. If it comes from God, it's been given by God, where's the competition lie? You don't own it anyway, right? It belongs to God. So John states very clearly again that he's not the Christ, but he is the forerunner to Christ. John says, my ministry is not to point at Christ, but to point to Christ. You see the difference? We do that all the time, don't we? We point at things. Hey, did you see that over there? Do you see what they're doing? Do you see what happened? With a critical spirit. Yeah, 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 you know. 
But pointing to something is something you want them to be drawn to. You want them to have a focus on that thing that you're pointing to. All of us have God-given gifts and opportunities throughout the course of our day, throughout the course of our week, our lives. And you've heard it said before that God's way more interested in our availability than he is our abilities. Because the abilities he gave to us to start with, he's not impressed with those. You know I mean? We say, hey, look what I'm doing, Lord. Yeah, are you using it for me? Are you available for me to work through you with that particular gift or ability or that opportunity? So we're to be available for God to use us. And then when he does, we give all the glory to him, right? So we have dispute, we have defense, and number three, we have delight. Delight. John is joyful for his ministry. Verse 29, he says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. That's pretty clear. This joy of mine is fulfilled. He's full of joy. John gives this great illustration because he compares it to Jesus, to the bridegroom, and himself as one of the groomsmen and maybe even the best man. That's what I like to look at. So Jesus is the bridegroom. John the Baptist is the best man. Once the bridegroom has the bride, we've all been to weddings, right? When the bridegroom has the bride, for all practical purposes, the work of the best man's done. There's really no other work for him to do. Success, they've come together, he's done his job, bride, groom, groom are together, and he just kind of backs off into the distance. Now, if all of a sudden, at the reception or whatever, he starts making himself known again, well, I'm the best man. Without a doubt, I'm the best man. I'm the best man here. The groom's not the best man. I'm the best man. Calling attention to himself. He's not giving the bridegroom the attention that he deserves. He's trying to upstage, if you will, the bridegroom. John's not doing that. John uses this analogy to say the bridegroom is here for his bride, and I'm going to back off and take a backseat to this work that's going on. And he was experiencing joy and delight because of hearing the voice of the bridegroom and know that he had claimed his bride. You don't see the bridegroom bummed out after the wedding normally. He's, he's happy. And he's talking. You know, he's full of joy himself. And so the best man hears his voice and he rejoices with him because of what's taken place. This wedding, it's a joyful time. The bridegroom, Jesus Christ, we know later in Scripture we see that the bride is us, the church, that's going to be taken out. Well, in Luke chapter 1, verse 44, that we see that even before his birth, John leaped for joy in his mother's womb just hearing the voice of Mary, Jesus' mother. She walked into the room and just hearing his voice, John leapt for joy. John was filled with joy from, from the womb all the way through his ministry here. He's bearing witness of Jesus, as we saw in John 1, pointing to Jesus and testifying of him. And then he says in verse 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. 
Remember the greater than, less than thing we talked about? John realizes his position and ministry in Jesus. What God had called John to do, John is fulfilling. And now he's stepping out of the way. He's decreasing his ministry to make, he's made way for the Lord and the Lord's going to take over. Now we see in chapter 3 the word must used in three significant ways. The must of the sinner, the must of the Savior, and the must of the servant. The must of the sinner, John 3, 7. Do not marvel that I said to you what? You must be born again. We saw that. We looked at that two weeks ago. And then the must of the Savior. The must of the Savior, John 3, 14. Even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. We looked at that last week. And now we see the must of the servant. The servant of God says, I must, he must increase and I must decrease. These seven words capture what the true focus of ministry should be. When we come to Christ from that moment on, he should increase in our lives and we should de decrease. If we're promoting someone else or some other thing over and above Jesus Christ, we're in error. Or if we're promoting any person over and above Jesus Christ, we're in error. It's all about Jesus. So as I draw closer to Him, this discipleship class we're doing on Thursday night, that's what that's all about, to draw closer to Jesus. And as I draw closer to Him, He becomes greater, I become lesser. He must increase, but I must decrease. Number four, declare. John was all about testifying of Jesus Christ. He's declaring him. Through the remainder of this chapter, John declares Jesus. He testifies of him. He gives this declaration of Jesus. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus was not simply called from heaven. Jesus was not simply empowered from heaven. Jesus came from heaven. He was the other two things as well. He was called, he was empowered, but he came from heaven. And it was this very claim that the Jews were constantly disputing. Why? You say you're from heaven, then an obvious tie there with God, right? You're claiming to be God. So Jesus came from heaven, therefore he represents the Father. And to reject his witness is to reject the Father as well. Verse 32, And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified God is true. In John chapter 8, verse 38, it says, I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. That just makes sense, doesn't it? Each of us, as we have done things growing up with our fathers, and we speak of those things, certain things that we did together, uh, whatever it is, going hunting, going fishing, just hanging out, whatever that might be. You can speak of those things because you were there, you experienced those things with your father. 
Jesus is saying the same thing here. I came from heaven. I was with my Father. Now I am testifying of those things that I saw with my Father. He's seen and heard from the Father, his Father. You remember last week in our study what Jesus said in verse 11? Chapter 3, verse 11. Just look over the page. Most assuredly, verily, verily, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. I'm telling you what I've experienced. I'm telling you what I've seen, what I know, but you don't receive the witness. Jesus goes on in John chapter 10, verse 30 to say, I and my Father are one. Chapter 5, verse 23, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. In chapter 5, verse 19, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself but what He sees the Father do. For whatever He does, the Son also does in like manner. Those who receive His witness and act on it know by personal experience that His witness is true. We would agree with that. As we've come to know Jesus Christ and seen Him work in our lives and in the lives of others around us, as they give witness and as they give testimony, we know that to be true. Hold your place in John and turn over to 1 John, way back right before Revelation, 1 John, chapter 1. We've referenced this before in our teaching, but this is the Apostle John wrote this book as well, and he's giving testimony of his experience with Jesus, just like we would. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So we see John the Baptist testifying and declaring of Jesus Christ, fulfilling his ministry and his calling, and he was full of joy. We see the disciples doing the same thing, and what? They want us to experience the same joy that they're experiencing in Jesus Christ. So John writes that for us. We write these things to you that your joy may be full. Verse 34, back in John chapter 3, says, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. He whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. In the Old Testament, if we look back at the Old Testament, we see that God gave the Spirit to men with limitation. Not limitation on God's part, but limited in time. The Spirit would come upon them for some work, some act, and the Spirit would be taken away. The Spirit didn't reside with them all the time. So the Spirit was given by measure. God sent many messengers to convey this truth to the world. And each of them received a measure of the Spirit. And it, 
it was a measure that was necessary for them to complete the ministry that God was calling them to, to, to bear this true witness he was calling them for. But now Jesus was totally and completely spirit-filled. He had the Holy Spirit without measure. We know at his baptism, it came upon him and remained, it says in John 1, uh, verses 32 and 33. It was not in careful measured portions, not spooned out for Jesus, that the Spirit was given to him. It was without measure, fully, completely upon him. And it's further proven in the next verse, verse 35, the Father loves the Son, and what? Has given all things into his hand. All in the Greek means all. He's given all things into his hand. So when it comes to receiving the Holy Spirit, in that picture that we have at Jesus' baptism, he's completely covered with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is him. And we know Jesus is God. Jesus is the Spirit. But it's a picture for us to see that Jesus was full of the Spirit to be able to carry out the ministry that God had called him to. The same is true for us. He wants us to be full of that Spirit to carry out what he wants us to do. John chapter 5, verse 20 says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. There's this relationship between Jesus and the Father that if the Jews would have just listened to what he was saying and what he was teaching... Maybe, maybe not they would have gotten it, but certainly Jesus was holding nothing back. He was very clear on his relationship with the Father. Verse 36 in our text, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. We saw in chapter 1, verse 12, it said, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. They believed in his name, they received him into themselves, and he gave them the right to become his children. And then last week we talked for quite some time, if you weren't here and you want to pick up the CD or the, download the teaching, John 3.16, we spent some time on that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We looked at that verse in detail because it was the whole of the gospel in that one verse shared with us. So in all, we see in chapter 3, the Apostle John is really emphasizing relationship with Jesus Christ. When John wrote this, Nicodemus, that whole conversation, it was all about relationship with Jesus Christ. You must be born again. And then now, as we moved on through the rest of that chapter, John is closing out writing what John the Baptist is testifying and declaring about Jesus Christ, and that you must have relationship with him in order to be a child of God. And this relationship with Christ is three things. It's a living relationship. It begins with being born again, the new birth, new life. A loving relationship in that we love him so much he increases in our life and we decrease because we place trust in him to run our lives. He loved us so much that he died for us, so we must die to self. And a learning relationship, receiving his word as truth, living by it and living in it. That's why we gather together on Saturday nights. 
We want to grow in our walk with the Lord. We want to have that learning relationship with Him. We want to have that loving relationship. Our mission statement here, loving God, loving others. For God so loved us, He's calling us to love others as well. And then this living relationship, living out each and every day of our lives for the Lord and in the Lord. Remember, we've talked about the two types of people, those that have a relationship with Jesus and those that don't. That's the only two types of people groups in the world, saved and unsaved. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you're here tonight, you need to take care of that. Tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. We don't know what could happen this evening, in the night. We, we have no idea. If you do have a relationship with Jesus, you need to continue to grow in it. And for both of those things, let's go to the Lord in prayer.